Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. James Drake, a pediatric neurosurgeon from the University of Toronto in Canada and son of Charles G. Drake, for whom the Clinical Congress lecture was named. During the lecture this past October, Dr. James Drake provided a history of his father's legacy as a pioneer in adult neurological surgery and world expert in vascular malformations of the brain, along the way discovering new things about his father's career, relationships, and work philosophies. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Well, uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm extraordinarily honored to be asked to give this lecture, which has been named after my father. My whole family has taken a huge interest in this, and I want to be sure I thank them for providing all the information and pictures I'm going to show at this lecture, and also particularly to my wife, Jane, who is here in the audience, and as an author and the family photographer has really helped me sort through Charlie's archives and also many of the photographs I'm going to show. My family remains extraordinarily proud of my father, and I'm going to call him Charlie because nobody called him Charles, and uh, that his legacy is remembered in this way. So I know that 30 years after the inauguration of this lecture, that there's a whole new group of surgeons in the audience here, and I think that many of you would have either never heard of him or know very little about him. And so I thought I would take this opportunity at the 30th year anniversary to tell him tell you a lot about him, but also about his personal life, because like all of us, his professional life and his personal life were completely intertwined. I think most people would expect that I would know all about my father's career, but in fact, it was a bit of a blur. I went to, I was away for high school, university, medical school, residency, and also practiced neurosurgery in, a, in Toronto. Uh, And so I was away for many of the defining moments of his career. He also didn't like to talk about his achievements, and the family joke was that we'd read about it in the newspaper before we ever heard about it from, from Charlie. So going into his career in more detail uh, has been really interesting and revealing for me and actually for my whole family. The main question I had going into this uh, project was how did he actually manage to do all of this? And secondly, you know, what can we all learn from looking at the career of uh, this individual that might influence our own? So this is my own personal history uh, of Charlie. And as in all families, a lot of it's oral. So I've done my best to try and uh, validate much of the oral version, but uh, many of the players have passed away decades ago. So I've done my best to validate these stories, but if they're not the absolute truth, I still think they're good stories. <laughs> so I've entitled this, uh, Charles George Drake, A Personal History. So I've listed here the prior speakers for this lectureship, and uh, Charlie would have seen the first six, 
but he would be exceedingly as pleased with the subsequent speakers who have ranged in experts from virtually every surgical discipline from anesthesia and discussed the forefront of surgery and its history going back uh, to the, the Greek era. In red, I've shown the neurosurgeons uh, who would have been Charlie's friends and colleagues. And uh, it was so important for him that neurosurgery be seen as very much part of, uh, of the surgical um, field. And also, more recently, some of my uh, friends and colleagues have presented here, which, um, uh, oops, uh, which indicates to me that uh, pediatric neurosurgery is also seen as a very important part of surgery. So uh, this is Charlie's uh, role in the American College of Surgery. He was a member of the Advisory Council in 1966, then on the Board of Regents, and then President from 1984 to 1985. This lectureship, as you've heard, was inaugurated in 1992. In his presidential address, which he entitled The Craft of Surgery, Its Changing Face, he reviewed the advances in surgery over the 40 years of his career. He noted the effects of regulation, pharmacology, and technology on the craft. He supported the growth of interventional procedures, but by practitioners properly trained and invested in the patient. The advances in balloon and glue technology and vascular malformations of the brain, including aneurysms and AVMs, he had predicted had been largely realized. I'm not sure that he was right on this aspect. And finally, he quoted Wilder Penfield, another very prominent Canadian neurosurgeon at the Montreal Neurological Institute, who said, the opportunity to learn walks with any surgeon who enters the operating room with questions on their mind. There's actually a fair amount written about my father in the medical literature. Some of it appeared as obituaries after his death from his colleagues and trainees such as Neil Cassell, Gary Ferguson, and Alan Fox. Roly Del Maestro and Steve Lowney, who were trainees and were colleagues of Charlie's at SickKids, uh, had written about him, uh, Roly in terms of his development of the fenestrated aneurysm clip, and Steve Lowney provided a lot of information about Charlie's professorships and the uh, Drake uh, Hunterian uh, Laboratory at the University of Western Ontario. Graham Vanderlinden at the bottom here wrote a paper called Bovies, Burholes, and Blood Clots, which described his experience about his training in neurosurgery, which included being a resident with Charlie in the early 60s. Hunt Bajer gave this lecture several years ago and published it in the journal Neurosurgery. And finally, there's uh, a paper by Charlie himself in celebration of the 75th anniversary of neurosurgery in Toronto and the 75th anniversary of the appointment of K.G. McKenzie as Canada's first neurosurgeon. He wrote a history of his training in Toronto. Unfortunately, he died before this event, but nevertheless, this uh, paper was published after his death. And these are the archives at the University of Western Ontario where Charlie went to medical school and spent his entire surgical career. And within the archives are, in, are papers on Charlie's um, personal uh, proposals, his photographs, writings, research material, and correspondence. So I think the, there are kind of two perspectives for Charlie. One is the medical one, and I've listed here some but not all the awards that he won. In the, in the London community, he was a pioneer and world expert in vascular malformations of the brain. He was chief of neurosurgery, chief of clinical neurosciences, and chief of surgery itself. 
He was president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the World Federation of Neurological Societies, the Society of Neurological Surgeons, the American College of Surgeons, and the American Surgical Association. He had honorary fellowships from uh, universities from around the world, and there are a number of named lectureships and institutions at the University of Western Ontario, including the Stevens Drake Research Institute. He won many awards, including the two top honors from the American Association of Neurological Surgeons. He also was an officer of the Order of Canada. He was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, and he was a companion of the Order of Canada, which is only held by 165 Canadians of all uh, walks of life at any one time. On the personal side, he was born in Windsor, Ontario in 1920. He was raised under modest circumstances by a widowed mother. He went to school in Windsor, medical school at the University of Western Ontario. He married my mother, Ruth Pitts, in 1946. We, there was four boys. He was still a neurosurgeon from the family's point of view, and his hobbies were flying, fishing, hunting, and golf. His favorite refuge was the cottage at Lion's Head, which had been our family since the 1930s, and he died of lung cancer at 1998 at the age of 78. So as mentioned, I'm going to be talking about some places that I'm also fairly sure you don't know much about. So Charlie was born in Windsor, that you can not see there. Uh, he spent his life practicing in London, Ontario. His mother was from St. Thomas, Ontario, and his wife Ruth grew up on a farm just outside of a very small village called Shakespeare. He spent uh, his neurosurgical training in Toronto, and the cottage, as I mentioned, is up on Lion's Head on the shores of Georgian Bay on the Bruce Peninsula. So his mother Madeline was born uh, in 1892 and although she was from Thomas, she was actually born in Chicago when their family went to the World's Fair, presumably she arrived early. She attended a college uh, in St. Thomas called Alma College, but her family uh, was uh, disrupted by a series of deaths, her mother at six, then her father, and then her, their stepmother, and she was an only child. She had been engaged to a physician uh, uh, in her 20s, uh, broke off that engagement, and um, married uh, Charles George when he uh, was ill. So he was, uh, worked in the family furniture store uh, and hated it and wanted to go to college. Uh, but for the family's sake, he, he, that's what he did. He was said by Madeline to be brilliant. He'd installed an elevator by himself. And uh, he died in the nine month of her pregnancy um, from the pandemic and or TB. His father, John Weldsford Drake, is our only family's claim to fame. He was actually the mayor of Windsor, but on digging further, he was there for one year and there were no other candidates. <laughs> so uh, here's Charlie in his early childhood at age 18 months and three. The furniture was sold on the death of his father his mother needed to work as a sales clerk in the Hudson's department store, and they had to move in with uh, his father's unmarried sisters, Marjorie and Dorothy, for financial reasons, and the aunts would look after Charlie for much of his childhood. So he went to school, as I said, in Windsor, but a teacher remembers him as the most thoughtful and determined student he'd ever known. He went to high school at the Kennedy Collegiate, and there he met a long, uh, lifelong friend, Malcolm Morton. Malcolm was interested in medicine. He would uh, spur Charlie's interest in science and medicine. 
Malcolm would go to medical school and then trained in general surgery, and then Charlie would follow in his footsteps. Malcolm had practiced as a general surgeon his whole career in Windsor, and he and Charlie remained lifelong friends. Charlie also played hockey, you can see him here, and uh, whenever we asked for new hockey equipment or anything like that, he would tell us that he used to wrap magazines around his shins with elastics and that we should stop complaining, but I'm not sure that we ever actually believed that. So in his teenage years, his mother met and subsequently married Harold Dimmy Woollett. The Woollett family owned a series of coal and lumber uh, stores, and Dimmy lived in London, Ontario. When they were married, Charlie stayed in Windsor with his aunts. Uh, Madeline and Dimmy were rendered virtually penniless after the stock market crash of 1929, but Dimmy was able to rebuild the company somewhat over the next 20 years. So uh, let's... Here's the uh, store in 1905, and then the store still exists uh, today. Uh, they started a camp and ultimately bought a small college on the shores of Georgian Bay at Lion's Head. Dimmy died at age 64 and left the company to Madeline. Uh, Madeline uh, ran the company herself, uh, which was unusual at the time. Uh, the family actually sued her for control of the company, but she won. And then she subsequently sold the company to the employees and retired. Charlie went to medical school during the war, and like those of the same era, is, um, the length of uh, school was shortened from six to four years. Here he is as a medical student uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the anatomy lab. And like many of the medical students at the time, he was inducted into the Army. So I'm showing him here in his Army uniform and here in a platoon in Brockville, Ontario. He was not a fan of the Army. Uh, he didn't like the uh, rigid uh, discipline. Uh, and um, he, he got uh, pleural effusion and spent several months uh, when he's in the Army in a, a sanatorium thought to have TB, which he, in fact, did not turn out to have. So he did his internship in 1944 at the Toronto General Hospital uh, he was initially in internal medicine, but he was put on the neurosurgery ward because the resident in neurosurgery was sick. He was on, uh, in the emergency department and called to see a patient who had a hemiparesis and a fixed dilated pupil after a fall. He called Dr. McKenzie, who was not at home but was out at a party, uh, to tell him about this case, and as Charlie said, he was quaking in his boots. McKenzie said to him, are you sure? And Charlie replied, yes. And it turned out the patient did have an extradural hematoma, and, he, and the McKenzie paid him a small compliment in the operative note, which is as much as you got in those days. But this started a lifelong uh, career mentor and friend with KG McKenzie. KG told him that he was a potential trainee in neurosurgery, but he should train in neuroscience first, and then said, we'll come back and see me after the war. At the Toronto General Hospital, he also met Henry Barnett. Henry Barnett was also an intern interested in neurology, and as you'll see, they would form a lifelong friendship and collaboration. When Charlie was a medical student, he taught uh, pharmacology and met a very interested uh, nursing student, Ruth Pitts, who, as I said, had been born outside of Shakespeare, Ontario on a farm. She was the youngest of seven children, and she attended a one-room schoolhouse across the road, which is still there today as a museum. She says the only reason she went to high school because her father owned a furniture store, and he had to go into the city every day. 
She went to nursing school because she couldn't afford university. Her father had emigrated from the UK at the age of 18 uh, while working in a brewery and deciding there was no future in this, uh, took a ship to uh, Canada. He worked steerage, which meant he looked after the cattle. And so uh, that, I guess, piqued his interest in farming. He somehow, and no one knows how, he ended up in southwestern Ontario, worked as a farmhand, and then ended up buying the farm next door with the house that you can see in the lower right. So in 1946, Charlie and Ruth were married, seen here and in Stratford with Ruth's parents and Charlie's mother and stepfather. So as instructed, he went and pursued training in neurosciences. He did a master's degree over two years. He worked with Murray Barr, who discovered the Barr body and the chromatin scene in buccal mucosa and also wrote an anatomy text on the human nervous system, which is still widely used today virtually all over the world and he worked with George Stavraki, who was interested in hypersensitivity in lesions of the nervous system. He then went to Yale and spent a year with John Fulton, a very well-known neurophysiologist, and there he worked with Frank Nelson and um, developed a cerebellar primunculus in primates. But despite this three years of training in neurophysiology, Charlie would never do basic lab research, basically overwhelmed by the clinical material he would discover in London, Ontario. He did his general surgery training at uh, Victoria Hospital uh, under Angus McLaughlin. There's Angus in, on the left in the lab coat. And um, uh, Angus was chair of uh, the Department of Surgery there for more than 25 years. He was also a first vice president of the American College of Surgeons and sparked Charlie's interest in this organization. He was president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, and he also hunted and raised Labradors. There, Charlie met uh, Angus's younger brother, John McLaughlin, and he and uh, Charlie would form also lifelong friends. Uh, this is an aside, but uh, Angus's um, daughter-in-law was Beverly McLaughlin, who just retired as the first female and longest serving Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. So here's Charlie as a resident in uh, general surgery in uh, London with uh, John McLaughlin and Malcolm Morton. He then went back to uh, Toronto to train in neurosurgery under K.G. McKenzie. Also there was Harry Bottrell, who had been a surgeon during uh, World War II he became interested in spinal cord injury and rehabilitation, uh, but also developed a Bottrell score for subarachnoid hemorrhage. K.G. McKenzie had originally been a family doctor, but then trained with Harvey Cushing, the father of North American neurosurgery, and then came to Toronto as the first neurosurgeon. His interests were surgical rhizotomy and acoustic neuroma. After 18 months, K.G. told Charlie, there's nothing further I can teach you. You should go to Queen's Square in the London and then Europe. This was a problem because when Charlie applied to the AANS, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, uh, an organization that he would ultimately be president of, his application was rejected because he was told he hadn't done enough training in neurosurgery. Uh, while there and just finishing his training, a patient of Dr. Bottrell's with an aneurysm who had been admitted to the hospital and booked for surgery on Monday had a temporal lobe hemorrhage over the weekend. Charlie could not get hold of Harry and called K.G. McKenzie who told him to take it out. So Charlie did that. He found the aneurysm and he clipped it 
It was the first aneurysm to be clipped at the Toronto General. He said when Harry arrived on Monday to find out about this, he was practically apoplectic. So what was the influence of K.G. McKenzie on Charlie? K.G., from Charlie's point of view, was a technical master, always looking for new ways of doing things. He was imperturbable. He brooded about difficult problems. Acoustic neuromas were the queen of brain tumors. The subtemporal approach for Tic Dolorue was a, a technique that he uh, pioneered. He, was, uh, he thought head and spine trauma should be managed by general surgeons, that you should only hire a surgeon who's better than you, and that there was a future in, in brain aneurysms and Charlie should have a crack at it. He also thought that fly fishing, bird hunting, and golf were the key to a successful surgical life. So Charlie headed off to Queen Square with Ruth and my older brother John, who was three at the time. Uh, coincidentally, Henry Barnett and his wife Kay, also a nursing classmate of Ruth's, uh, was going for the same purpose but uh, to study in neurology. They shared a house in Catrum and a car. They both had children, and this further cemented a lifelong collaboration and friendship. So while he was there, Charlie signed a contract to work in Toronto as a staff neurosurgeon. But when he came back, and here they are at the uh, first McKenzie reunion. So KG retired in 1952. And there is uh, from um, your left to right, Harry Bottrell, KG McKenzie, and Charlie. Um, but uh, they both had second thoughts, and they agreed that Charlie should go to London, Ontario, which at the time was a, had a population of about 50,000 people. Uh, there was a large need, but they were also worried about the dominance of Harry Bottrell, who was a very imposing figure. At this time, that's when I was born, and I was born, I was named James Mackenzie Drake in honor of K.G. Mackenzie. No pressure. So these are Charlie's first series of publications up till 1960. And it was interesting to me that there's nothing here about brain aneurysms. So it, it took him a while to uh, develop all this. And, and part of this may be uh, what he was faced with. So he was the only neurosurgeon in Western Ontario and was on call 24-7. He was given operating time on Friday afternoons. He had a busy practice. He uh, trained the local and regional general surgeons in the management of head injury and spinal trauma. And he would take no trainees for 10 years, guided by K.G. McKenzie, he did treat, however, his first four basilar artery aneurysms, and he took up hunting, golf, fishing, and flying. Although, other than flying, these were actually quite infrequent events because, like many of his era, he worked extremely hard. So this is our family in the mid-50s. So uh, my two younger brothers, Stephen and Tom, came along, and Charlie also following in Angus McLaughlin's footsteps started to also raise Labradors, but after one litter, my mother put a complete stop to this, and from then on, they were just family pets. And in the bottom right hand uh, is, where, is the house that we all grew up in, and where my mother, who's now 98, still lives on her own. So this is what I think is the seminal publication that launched Charlie's uh, cerebral vascular uh, career, particularly on uh, aneurysms of the posterior circulation. So this appeared in 1962, and it, uh, there was four cases, and uh, one of them was added afterwards for a total of five. 
And the surgical technique is very interesting. They use deep hypothermia to 26.5 degrees centigrade, a lumbar drain. He used the subtemporal approach that he'd been taught by K.G. McKenzie. And they temporarily occluded all four vessels uh, going to the brain. They had clamps on both carotid arteries. The, uh, the vertebral arteries were digitally compressed. And the dissection, as described by Charlie, had to be bold and swift. They also, uh, they used aneurysm clips, but reinforced the aneurysm with hammered muscle. And the results were reasonable at the time. At the time this was done, these uh, aneurysms were considered largely inoperable or only uh, treatable by proximal occlusion uh, or ligation. Three, there were three good outcomes and there were two deaths. Uh, one patient died uh, with a preoperative rupture and could not be rescued. And the second patient, who was operated in Hanover, New Hampshire, with Ernie Sachs, uh, the operation went fine, but the patient died uh, from cardiac arrest, presumably from hypothermia. A fifth case was done at the Toronto Western Hospital, and the patient had postoperative hydrocephalus, but a good outcome. Um, so Charlie had, I always wondered how he had found so many basilar artery aneurysms, but uh, actually he sort of became an itinerant uh, basilar artery surgeon, uh, and he would also uh, clip aneurysms uh, again in Toronto and then again out uh, in Manitoba. He also developed his team, so uh, John Alcock was a neuroradiologist recruited from the UK, Ron Eakin was uh, a London uh, anaesthetist who did all Charlie's cases basically, and over on the right hand side are two of Charlie's scrub nurses, Doreen Baker and Betty McCabe. And these were all close family friends. Uh, John Alcock was a bachelor. He spent a lot of time at our house for dinners and at uh, holiday celebrations. And every two weeks in the summer, he would come to the cottage and stay there, insisting on having his own room far from the chaos, which is still called Dr. Alcock's room. Uh, Ron Aiken and his wife, Liff, who were both anesthetists, uh, and their kids were about the same age as ours. We spent a lot of time together. And Doreen and Betty took a real interest in it. They did, in us as kids, they didn't have any children of their own. And they would look after us uh, on weekends, but also took an interest in us uh, for the rest uh, of um, our, our careers. So the next decade, the 60s, I would describe as emerging expertise and ongoing innovation. So Charlie's next series of publications on Basler aneurysms were 10 additional cases. The results, however, weren't quite as good. Uh, there were four excellent, two good, three fair or poor, and five deaths. He was very careful in this publication to describe the adverse events in great detail. And that would mark Charlie's career uh, from then on. He would always talk about his complications. And in terms of publishing his results, he would always say that you had to be so honest it hurts. He had stopped using deep hypothermia and circulatory arrest. Uh, he started operating on basilar bifurcation aneurysms, and it appeared that injury to the perforators coming off the back of the basilar bifurcation was one of the explanations for patients who would have what seemed like a very good operation, but that not really wake up. His uh, conclusions are somewhat tempered from his first publication. He says, in the light of this experience, an operation on the basilar bifurcation aneurysms of the basilar artery can only be considered as an extremely hazardous adventure. But his reputation was spreading, and in 1963, when Harry Bothrell came as a lecturer to London, 
He said, do you students realize that Dr. Drake is world famous for his ability to treat basilar aneurysms? This is the uh, classification system that Charlie used in this article, and it also illustrates how every case that he did, he would have a drawing like this in the hospital record that showed the angiogram and also uh, the aneurysm itself. So I was always curious as to how this whole process got started. And so I reached out to Graham Vanderlinden um, in March of this year. Graham is 92. He was a resident with Charlie at the University of Western Ontario. He then was a staff surgeon at uh, the Toronto Western Hospital when I was a resident. Uh, at uh, London, he looked up the late consequences of incomplete surgical treatment of cerebral aneurysms, and he started the database that would be used from then on for the cerebral aneurysms. So here's re his response in terms of what was it like. Yes, when I, I started working with uh, Charlie as a resident in, uh, in January of 1965, and uh, by that time uh, he had, uh, he had uh, surgically treated uh, uh, six uh, basilar aneurysms, and um, in the next 18 months that I was working with him, I assisted him at uh, another six, so, the, so um, I felt at that time that I probably knew more about assisting at basilar aneurysms than uh, just about anyone, any place. Okay. So I, I realize um, now from this perspective that uh, we were uh, relatively crude in the, in the operating room. We used overhead lighting and uh, and I did all my work uh, without any extra uh, glasses or uh, but Charlie uh, wore loops. Um, it wasn't until um, uh, later that um, magnification came into uh, into um, uh, common use, and as a matter of fact, it was Ted Kersey, uh, whom, whom Charlie introduced me to, uh, who um, developed a microscopic, uh, the use of a microscope in the operating room, and he told us that it was uh, wonderful, the, the vision, it was like the wonders of the deep, I remember him saying. So in, in 1968, he recruited his good friend Henry Barnett to London as chief of neurology, and together they formed the first department of clinical neurological sciences uh, in 1969. And this department included neurosurgery, neurology, uh, neuroradiology, and neuropathology. Charlie was appointed the inaugural chair, and this launched a period of phenomenal growth and productivity. So I'm not going to say a lot about Henry Barnett, but his career followed a similar one to Charlie's uh, in, in the neurology world. He was a preeminent stroke neurologist. He was the editor of Stroke. He wrote the definitive textbook on stroke as the main editor. He founded and directed the Robarts Research Institute. He had many honorary degrees. He was an officer of the Order of Canada. He was in the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, and he was also made a companion of the Order of Canada. Uh, and in terms of friendship, he bought a house two doors down from us, and he and Charlie would often confer about the department uh, on the evenings. Uh, Kay, his wife, and my mother Ruth were ongoing best friends. 
and I kept bumping into their extraordinary daughter, Jane. So we had been forced to play together as children when our families got together, but we both changed a lot by the time we got to university. So it was at this point that Charlie uh, developed the fenestrated clip. And as I said, this was very well documented by Roly Del Maestro. And Charlie was struggling with the problem of occluding the Basler uh, aneurysm without interfering with the posterior, circul posterior cerebral arteries that were either involved or nearby, and also protecting the perforator arteries at the back of them. So he got the idea to bend the clips uh, and make an aperture. He tried to do this on his own, but he was unable to. So he, as I'll show in a minute, contacted the group in Cincinnati in order to have a Mayfield, Frank Mayfield, who'd been making aneurysms clips, to make one special for, uh, for basilar artery aneurysms. So here's the concept in terms of how it would be used to occlude the um, basilar artery aneurysm, but still protect uh, the posterior cerebral arteries. And uh, it also worked for other uh, art aneurysms, and this is shown here for the anterior communicating artery aneurysms. And it could also uh, be used to reconstruct uh, the feeding vessels if they were involved in the aneurysm by using the aperture to partially occlude each segment of the, of the aneurysm, but then totally occlude it with the sum of the three clips. And these clips have been used uh, worldwide. They're on virtually every aneurysm. Uh, um, uh, set today, and unfortunately, Charlie never patented this idea. So here's Frank Mayfield, and uh, this was interestingly done, all done over a week. So Charlie called uh, Frank and asked him if he could do this. He contacted his engineer, uh, Keys, and um, within a week, he had three of these clips, uh, one differing by one millimeter in length, that came to London, and they promptly uh, and they used them on this particular patient that was coming up from, from New York uh, City. Uh, and that's a slightly different path than one would experience nowadays if we try to uh, build a device like that and, and use it on a patient. And there, this is what the fenestrated clips uh, look like, both in the straight and uh, curved version. So Charlie's real passion was flying, and uh, he was an extremely good pilot. He had accumulated 3,000 hours of flying by the time that he stopped flying. Uh, he was instrument rated, multi-engine rated, and uh, he had been certified in all these uh, aircraft that I'm showing here. Um, he would take the family on a lot of uh, our um, holiday ventures, but he was extremely careful. And if the weather was bad, we would uh, arrive at the airport, wait a couple hours, and then return home. My mother, who was a bit concerned about us all flying together as a family, got her flying license with the idea that if there was ever a problem with Charlie, she could at least land the plane. In the painting there is a picture of Charlie buzzing the cottage. He would fly up to the cottage on weekends, and this is the local family doctor painting a picture of his uh, airplane. He actually flew this airplane to Acapulco in 1959 with my mother and my older brother, a feat that most individuals uh, would wonder about, even with the modern navigation aids, which uh, do not exist today. And finally, he had a ride in an Air Force jet as a passenger, which I understand violates every regulation uh, in the Air Force. But in any case, we believe it's because he operated on a pilot who flew one of the presidential uh, aircraft. The patient had a basilar aneurysm that Charlie clipped. 
he made a full recovery, and Charlie was a little dismayed that that ended the, uh, the pilot's flying career in the, in the military. He was interested in fishing, and I'm showing here uh, some of the fishing photos. On the bottom left is he is there with Henry Barnett. There's a, a group of us on the dock at Lion's Head with some bass, and over on the right is Charlie, me, and my son Brian with a salmon that's been caught off the front of the cottage. Cottage was extraordinarily important in our family. As I said, my, my father and his mother had had their honeymoon there. Uh, we would spend the whole summer there, and um, in, in some ways it was a place where we would test our mettle. The, the water in Georgian Bay on the side is frigid, and we would uh, learn to swim, sail, uh, to windsurf, and also deal with the storms that would blow up uh, in an instant on this uh, bay. And to this day, we still spend time uh, up at the cottage. So the 70s, I would say, is a decade of recognition and exponential growth. So Charlie was president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the World Federation, and he was an honored guest of the Congress. It was also the time that the boys uh, went to university. So John went to Western, got a law degree, but then uh, after several years in practice, went into business with his partner. Um, Stephen and Tom went to the University of Toronto, got executive MBAs, and worked for uh, an automotive warehousing company and IBM, respectively. So Charlie's publications now were, I think, a reflection of the leading edge of uh, vascular uh, malformations of the brain, including aneurysms and AVM. And they become to include more and more of the members of his staff who are involved in identifying uh, these uh, cases that uh, were kind of on the edge of what was possible with aneurysm surgery and included uh, the treatment of, uh, of vasospasm. He also began to use what he called Hunterian ligation to occlude basilar artery uh, aneurysms that were otherwise inoperable. So if the, if the patient was explored and there was no way to put out a clip on the aneurysm, then he would place a snare around the um, the basilar artery and run it through a polyethylene sheath which he would bring out through the skin and then uh, they would slowly tighten this noose with the patient awake in the angiography suite and see if they could occlude the basilar artery without inducing any other symptoms. So this did not work in any, every patient and there were complications related to it but these were otherwise inoperable cases at the time. He also developed a fairly large experience in arteriovenous malformations of the brain, treating 166 cases by the mid-70s. A lot of them appear to be patients who were sent because they had an associated aneurysm or they were extremely complex malformations involving eloquent cortex. And he also started using um, open cannulation and embolization of the feeding vessels. He was an early uh, proponent and adopter of interventional radiology. So when Serbanyenko, the Russian uh, neurosurgeon at the Bordenko Institute had, uh, reported initially use of balloons for occluding uh, cerebral vessels and aneurysms. There was a huge amount of interest in this. Gerard de Brun, who was a Paris uh, radiologist, had spent some time with Serbanyenko, and he developed a calibrated leak balloon that he began to use to occlude lesions such as carotid cavernous fistula. So he was recruited uh, to London by Charlie and began a large interventional program and developed a fair experience in the uses of detachable balloons for proximal artery occlusion. They also recruited two uh, neuroradiologists, Fernando Venuela 
and Alan Fox would grow to be uh, absolute experts in this um, realm. And this is all the time that uh, myself and Jane were married, and uh, here we are with Ruth and Charlie at our wedding, and this is 46 years later with uh, five grandchildren, not all of them in the picture, and there's my uh, mother, Ruth. So one of the questions has always been, what, um, what was made Charlie unique? Uh, so I think Skip Peerless potentially said this the best, and this was back in 1979, that he had an uncanny perception of surgical anatomy and was a good neurologist. He could work exceptionally hard and was stamina that could last 10 or 12 hours. He kept meticulous records. He was single-minded and determined. He was not easily dissuaded by failures, impossible situations, and reflection, perseverance, endurance. He would restart afresh and enthusiastic after each uh, disappointment. So Skip also has remained a family friend. Uh, he retired about um, 15 years ago. He's now living in Florida at um, 87 years of age. So I asked him, you know, 43 years later, Skip, uh, what do his you think? His best about surgical skill, I think, was his ability to look, particularly down a dark, deep hole uh, at the base of the brain, very quickly figure out the surgical anatomy and uh, move vessels around with just enough precision uh, to prevent a, a rupture or some, something disastrous happening, but enough to clarify what, what we're looking at. The, the other thing about him, his, uh, his personality that made it possible was his uh, steadiness, uh, <clears throat> even under a lot of stress and difficulty. He, I rarely saw him flustered or having second thoughts. He always was able to project a, uh, a calmness and equanimity in the face of some awful circumstances. And the other thing that, of course, part of that was every case didn't go perfectly. And uh, there were lots, <clears throat> lots of disasters that we would f worry about afterwards in the, fo in the following hours and days. He had an uncanny, rather than being depressed or despondent about it, he would try and turn it into a circumstances. How, uh, how could we do this better to avoid that uh, bad result we've just had? And I think for a surgeon, particularly a neurosurgeon doing this kind of hazardous work, that was a, a personality trait that was uh, very useful. In fact, probably essential uh, because most neurosurgeons would have one go at this kind of a, 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 a case, and if it went badly, they would give it up. So I would describe the 80s as the zenith. Uh, Charlie was uh, president of this organization and several others. He was awarded the Order of Ontario, the Order of Canada, and inducted in the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. He wrote a review article on anterior venous malformations of the brain, the options for management, which was in the New England Journal. And the publications, again, uh, were at the leading edge in terms of cerebral vascular surgery. It was also a time when I think the department of the world, uh, department was further uh, brought to the world stage with the report of two prospective randomized surgical trials that were run by Barney and Skip Peerless and Alan Fox. And in this first one, it was a study of the role of uh, intracranial extracranial intracranial artery anastomosis using the superficial temporal artery anastomosis to the middle cerebral artery. It's an extremely technically demanding procedure. 
been pioneered by Gazi Yastergil. It, um, it had its strong proponents and it was said to prevent stroke. So the group put this to the test with a prospective randomized trial and the results were negative. The trial, to say the least, was not popular with, the, uh, with the, those that were invested in this. Uh, there were claims that uh, thousands of patients had been operated outside of the trial. There was actually a, a group convened by the AANS to take a careful look at the, the results of the trial, and they concluded that there was nothing in the results that would invalidate those. And Charlie and Skip, uh, or uh, Barney and Skip, uh, held the fort, and they wrote a, a paper on the, are the results generalizable? And, uh, and ultimately, this uh, operation was abandoned. Uh, the second one was the NACID study, or the effect of carotid endarterectomy in symptomatic patients. And again, this prospective randomized multicenter trial was funded by the NIH. It was run through the Robarts Research Institute, which uh, Barney had started, and it showed a substantial benefit to those with, um, who had surgery compared to those who had best medical management for those with severe carotid artery stenosis. And this again was run by uh, Barney and, um, and uh, Skip Peerless and Gary Ferguson and the other members of the epidemiology team. And uh, as an anecdote, uh, true to Barney's belief in his own results, he actually had a TIA himself, a dominant hemisphere TIA at the age of 83, and he turned out to have a left internal artery, carotid artery occlusion, and a 99% stenosis on the right side. But because he had a complete occlusion, and because he was asymptomatic on the right side, he refused any operative intervention. He treated himself with aspirin, another study which I haven't mentioned that he conducted, and he lived the rest of his 13 years without any further events and died of old age. So here's Charlie and Barney at University Hospital at the peak of their careers. It was not only them that succeeded, but members of their group. And without going into details, uh, many members of their group populated the chairs of neurology and neurosurgery across Canada and, uh, and uh, other countries. It was also a time of celebrity. So Charlie met President Reagan under circumstances that nobody in the family seems to know. It might have something to do with the Air Force pilot. But he also uh, operated on Della Reese, and uh, she would kind of adopt Charlie and would sing his praises much to his uh, dismay. So she collapsed while taping for the Johnny Carson show, was initially not recognized what was wrong with her, but ultimately she had two bilateral aneurysms, not in the posterior circulation, and she was flown to London in Frank Sinatra's jet. So this made a little bit of a stir in, uh, in, in London, and she came back to have a benefit concert for the department in which Charlie refused to uh, come up on the stage. She, she complained about him not allowing her to say anything about him, um, and finally said, Charlie, you gotta let us love you up a little bit. So he retired in 1992, uh, largely to play golf. And here he is uh, on the tee, uh, my brother's golf course in St. Thomas, just south of London. So John and his partner, uh, had built a private golf course uh, south of London called Redtail. It was a Donald Steele course. Uh, there was the two owners and 100 invited members, and at one point it was ranked fifth in Canada. It attracted an interesting array of dignitaries and visitors, including Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, who came following a royal tour for a few days' respite, 
Sean Connery, an avid golfer, and Mike Weir, the only Canadian pro to win the Masters tournament. Um, uh, Charlie and Ruth, uh, Charlie was not so taken with the exclusivity of this club, but he loved the idea that he could play there anytime he wanted for free. When I asked him uh, how he thought about his retirement, he said, you know, I miss the patients and my colleagues, but not the grief. So here's the Her Majesty the Queen uh, with my brother and his partner and their family and the, and the royal entourage. And this is uh, at the top, um, that's Sean Connery with two of John's uh, older sons. He continued to publish. His book on uh, uh, posterior fossa aneurysms was put together by Skip Peerless and Juha Herniznimi, uh, and one of the largest series perhaps ever on basilar artery aneurysms. However, his retirement only lasted five years. Uh, he developed, uh, he had a carcinoma of the right upper lobe of his lung. He wanted a surgical procedure, but he had radiation, cranial, he had radiation and chemotherapy first. On his preoperative screening MRI, he had miliary uh, cerebral metastasis, had whole brain radiation, developed a malignant pleural effusion, had a chest strain, but he con continued to play golf. Uh, he'd received the Companion of the Order of Canada in June of that year, and normally that ceremony occurs in December, uh, presided over by the Governor General of Canada. Realizing that he was likely too ill to either attend the ceremony or to survive that long, a special ceremony was um, put together by the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Hillary Weston, seen there. So it was a moving ceremony. It was in the auditorium at University Hospital. Charlie was in a wheelchair because of his shortness of breath. He stood up to get his medal, which is placed around his neck, and the auditorium rose uh, to congratulate him. Uh, he died a month later of a pulmonary embolism, and that was the way he would have wanted to go. It was quick and painless. There was a memorial service for him uh, in the Alumni Hall at University six weeks later, and I just thought I'd focus on two of the speeches that were given. One was by Neil Cassell, uh, who was the chair of neurosurgery at uh, University of Virginia. He talked about what made Charlie great, and in particular, his integrity. You have to be so honest that it hurts. But he also said, uh, over the succeeding years, I was awed by him, I respected him, I revered him, and inevitably, I loved him. He was my mentor, my role model, the touchstone of my life as a surgeon, my friend, and my hero. And my daughter, Stephanie, who at that time was a first-year university student at the University of Toronto, and talked about the uh, Drake family getting together and it resulting in a three-ring circus and how Charlie even on the porch at Lion's Head would ask her about things such as gravity, electricity and the sine curve. There were 13 other grandchildren and they all had a, a unique relationship with Charlie. She was, she was uh, mar marked by the fact that he was ever stoic. He did not retreat into introspection but instead exclaimed over her mother's stir fry and read biology textbooks when she was at a loss to explain genetics. So in 2003, a memorial in front of University Hospital was erected in honor of Charlie. I've shown it here. There are three plaques which list his accomplishments as well as all the individuals that he had trained or worked with. There's a bust of Charlie and in front there's a plaque of a basilar bifurcation aneurysm occluded by a fenestrated clip. And this was done by Ivor Mendez, who's a former neurosurgery resident of his and now chair of 
Surgery University of uh, Saskatchewan. So Della Reese heard about this and uh, insisted on coming up for this unveiling there with my mother. So here we are 24 years later. I'm showing my three brothers, Tom, Stephen, and John, with members of their family. And there are now 22 grandchildren uh, with more on the way. Uh, two of the, the great-grandchildren, 22 great-grandchildren, two of the great-grandchildren are named Charlie. And the little one there at the bottom is named Charlotte. So my son Brian is also a neurosurgeon. He uh, is at the University of Ottawa. He's trained in endovascular and open vascular adult neurosurgery. So I asked Brian how many posterior circulation aneurysms he'd treated and you know, could he give me an example. So he's treated 72, uh, but 94% of them endovascularly. And so here's an aneurysm of the bilateral bifurcation. It's a large aneurysm with a daughter aneurysm. It's the kind that Charlie would have uh, struggled with his whole career and, and what he found the most challenging. And it's been treated with coiling and bilateral stents. Uh, and, um, and the patient uh, did well, was not, the patient was good, not excellent, and the aneurysm uh, partially recurred and had to be recoiled. So my father would have loved this on so many levels. The fact that, uh, you know, Brian was able to do this and not subject the patient to an open operation, but also that this still remains somewhat of a, a completely uh, solved, solved problem. So everybody takes home their own uh, messages on a life of an individual like this, and uh, these, these are mine. The value and impact of the guidance provided by mentors, the role of dedication, focus, persistence, and resilience, particularly when facing setbacks and poor outcomes, learning from complications, sharing those learnings, and building upon them, being so honest it hurts, the phenomenal impact of close friendships with colleagues in terms of pushing the frontiers and achieving the impossible. While not always present, you can still have enormous impact on your family, particularly through role modeling, but you miss out on a lot. And from Wilder Penfield, the opportunity to learn walks with any surgeon who enters the operating room with questions on their mind. So I'm gonna finish uh, with the uh, last, with the, I'll give the last word to Charlie. So this is from the Medical Hall of Fame, shot at the cottage. <clears throat> Work is the spice of life. And that it does mean some hardship for their, for their family. But uh, there's no alternative to it if, uh, if you're going to make your mark in surgery. Uh, I tell them, uh, at least to me, and I think to many other senior surgeons that I know, that the, another spice of life is to match your wits with the best in the game. Uh, those minds that are trying to do the same thing you are, to beat the disease and disorder that you face, to lick it. That's what it's all about. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.